Welcome to the Awesomers.com podcast. If you love to learn, and if you're motivated to expand your mind, and heck, if you desire to break through those traditional paradigms and find your own version of success, you are in the right place. Awesomers around the world are on a journey to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. We believe in paying it forward, and we fundamentally try to live up to the great Zig Ziglar quote, where he said, you can have everything in your life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. It doesn't matter where you came from, it only matters where you're going. My name is Steve Simonson, and I hope you will join me on this awesomer journey. If you're launching a new product manufactured in China, you will need professional, high-resolution, Amazon-ready photographs. Because Simo Global has a team of professionals in China, you will oftentimes receive your listings photographs before your product even leaves the country. This streamlined process will save you the time, money, and energy needed to concentrate on marketing and other creative content strategies before your item is in stock and ready for sale. Visit simoglobal.com to learn more, because a picture should be worth 1,000 keywords. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. You are listening to episode number 52 of the Awesomers.com podcast series. And as we've established a tradition at this stage, all you have to do is go to awesomers.com slash 52 and you can see all of today's show notes and details and get any little links and things that we talk about in today's episode. Now, today, my special guest is Trent Deersmid. And I, I think I got that right, but I never know. And Trent is a serial entrepreneur, husband, and father. His three private companies generate millions a year in revenue. Profit Magazine even named Trent's first company as one of Canada's Profit 100 fastest growing private companies the two years in a row before he sold it for seven figures way back in 2008. If you want to discover how to create business systems that will allow you to rapidly scale your e-commerce company, Trent is a great guy to follow. I really appreciate Trent's kind of systemic perspective and his foundation that, you know, the systems run the business and the people run the systems. It's a great testament to, to his accomplishments that he's been able to systematize and just keep replicating that success over and over again. Welcome back, Awesomers. It's Steve Simonson. And guess what? Today, I'm joined by a very uh, special guest, and his name is Trent Drismond. Drismid? Not even close, Steve. Deersmid. Trent yeah. Deersmid. You know, I even went and I practiced. All right. So just full disclosure, <laughs> Trent may not know this, but the audience knows I pretty much mess up most of the guest names. And it's not for lack of trying. I literally went to YouTube. I watched one of your videos. And I, I thought I had it, and uh, well, I didn't. So my my total has dropped to below forty percent for the month. So uh, sorry no about that, and uh, I'll I'll get better. Probably not. Um, all right. So Trent, first of all, thank you for joining us. I, I love to have you here. And we've already read in your bio and so forth that you've provided to us, so they kind of have a general idea. But in your own words, kind of tell us where you live and kind of what you do on a day to day basis, if you would. Sure. So I am a Canadian living in Boise, Idaho with my wife and family. And I have a couple of different online businesses. We have a, a pretty successful, rapidly growing Amazon wholesale business. And we, to make that business successful, I ended up creating a, an extensive library of standard operating procedures just for our internal purposes. Well, as luck would have it, word got out when I spoke about that at a conference a few years ago. And so that's become a product that is marketed under my Bright Ideas blog and podcast brand, and that product is called Webs. 
And we've now iterated that product. Uh, we've done two launches and now it's um, going to be in our own software this next time around this fall. And that software is called Flowster, which lives at flowster.app. I like that Flowster. That's kind of a, a, a callback to the old Napster days, huh? Something like it's a play on the, on the phrase workflow. I like it. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Uh, millennials, I have to look up what Napster was and how it destroyed the music industry, but I love it. Uh, so Flowster, obviously the, the premise of any system building is, is getting a good workflow, right? And, and making sure that step A and B and C, it's all lining up and easy. Is that the principle of that software? Yes, absolutely. If you look at, it doesn't matter what industry you're in um, or what business you're in. Businesses ideally are going to be broken down into pro repeatable processes. Maybe it's onboarding a new customer. Maybe it's managing a pay-per-click campaign on Amazon. Maybe it's sourcing a new product. Uh, or as this morning we had, uh, we, we had a, an employee termination. So maybe it's an employee termination or maybe it's a new hire. Everything that you do in, in a business um, is going to be broken down into a process. And I read the E-Myth by Michael Gerber when I started my first company way back in 2001. So I guess that makes me a little older. I'm middle-aged. I'm solidly middle-aged. Okay, I like that. Yeah, well, and good I, marketing. Yeah, and that, and that really, his, his ideology of, of has the CEO, I should spend my time working on the business and not in the business. That really, really hit home with me. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is I, I like to not be bogged down in, in minutia that, that is important, but is a part of running the business. So I thought, well, how, how can I make sure that I don't have to get bogged down in that stuff? And I needed to do a couple of things. I needed to document my systems and then I needed to delegate it to people on my team. And so I have this little acronym that I created for myself called CTOD. C stands for create. T stands for test, O stands for optimize. Oftentimes that's my job. Uh, and then there's document and delegate. And that to me, in my world, that, that's how I like to run my businesses. I don't want to work in any of them, but I'd like to work on all of them. Uh, I love it. I'm also a big fan of the E-Myth and I read it back in the late 90s, uh, perhaps even middle 90s, uh, probably not long after it came out to be honest. And, and it's very instrumental in my life as well. And this is one of the reasons why I love to have Trent come and share some of his systems, not just philosophy, but some of the, the results that he's been able to create. And, and we're going to dive into a lot of that systems talk, uh, but we're going to do it after the, we, we kind of get into your origin story. And we're going to dive into that right after this. Catalyst 88 was developed to help entrepreneurs achieve their short and long-term goals in e-commerce markets by utilizing the power of shared entrepreneurial wisdom. Entrepreneurship is nothing if not lessons to be learned. Learn from others. Learn from us. I guarantee that we will learn from you. Visit Catalyst88.com because your success is our success. A giddy up. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, we are back again, everybody. It's Steve Simonson, and I'm joined by Trent, uh, whose last name will uh, go unpronounced. I'm going to try it again. Drizmid. Dear Smid. Just like you're writing a letter to a guy named Smid. Dear Smid. Oh, dear Smid. Boom. Done. All right. See, I like the uh, that, uh, what do they call that where you do the, the sounds? It's a type uh, of learning. Mnemonic yeah. device. Yeah. We just we just developed a mnemonic device, Deersmid. There you That's go, perfect. I said it once. I said it a thousand times. I, I've got the name finally. Uh, so I want to uh, have you just dive into a little bit of your origin story. And and you mentioned that you are from Canada, but where were you born precisely? 
Langley, British Columbia. All right. Uh, it's in the, the suburbs, way suburbs of Vancouver. It's in the great, it's in the Fraser Valley, which is uh, near the nearest big city is Vancouver, BC. Nice. Okay. And how about your parents? Were they uh, entrepreneurial in nature? What did they do? Uh, not really. My mom um, never really had a career to speak of. Um, she did work for the government at one point in time. And then my dad, uh, for most of my childhood, was uh, a real estate salesman. So that's somewhat entrepreneurial, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and he was he was always uh, moderately successful. Fair enough. Uh, you know, real estate pros have to run out there. They have the crazy hours. Uh, it's you know, you'll hear the stories about the real estate guys. Oh, you know, this guy's making a, a killing and he works not at all. And, and I don't think that exists in real estate. You really have to, you have to really yeah. bust a move to make uh, money in that business. Uh, how about any siblings? Uh, any brothers, sisters? Yeah, I have an older brother um, from the original set of parents. My parents, like many other people, my parents divorced. And I have a younger half sister and a younger half brother that I know a little bit, but we didn't have a whole lot of opportunity in our in our childhood to interact we've become connected as adults how about that yeah it's a uh, all kinds of different families any of your siblings show entrepreneurial uh uh orientation like yourself mm -hmm. my brother and sister both work for the government and my brother uh, works for uh, a building contractor building swinging hammers and building houses Nice. Okay. Uh, the government's almost the opposite of entrepreneurial in many ways. Uh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> very much so. So that's fascinating. How about university? Did you uh, attend uh, college? Nope. Oh, well, geez. If I'm not, if I haven't gone to college, I, I dropped out after a semester and you haven't, I'm not sure anybody should continue to listen. What possibly could we know? So that's <laughs> interesting. Uh, what, what, what led you not to go to university? I know what it did for me, but, or, you know, why I, so uh, I, uh, I was a big fan of Star Wars and I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. So uh, the nearest thing to that would be being a fighter pilot. So my, when I was in high school, my ambition was to get into the military in Canada and become a fighter pilot. And while I was going through, which is a whole other story, while I was going through the process and I ultimately did get accepted as a pilot, um, I got a sales job selling office equipment. And um, much to my surprise, or maybe it wasn't my surprise, I'm not sure, but I was quite successful at it. And so that would have been way back in about 1991. So you can adjust back for inflation. Anyway, I was making about $5,000 a month way wow. back then selling photocopiers. Uh, I was assigned a territory and I'd go and knock and I'd been to, into every single business in my territory multiple times over the years that I did that job. So that... That spoiled college for me because, um, A, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and ultimately, like I say, I got in, but due to Canadian budget cutbacks, my tenure in the Air Force was uh, prematurely, that plane landed early. <laughs> um, and so then I was like, well, I'm not going to, why, why would I go back to college? I'm making all this money. Uh, I should just get a better sales job. And so I got a job as a, a stockbroker or a financial advisor, as we called them in Canada, for one of the, the big firms that was owned by one of the big five banks. And I, because I had learned how to cold call and, and speak to people um, selling photocopiers, um, I, I was wildly successful as a stockbroker and, and went on to make quite a bit of money in my very early 20s. Wow, I love it. Boy, that's uh, it's fascinating. Actually, uh, I also wanted to be a fighter pilot uh, in high school. 
and I went, I was going to high school on a Air Force base, uh, oh, yeah. so quite uh, familiar. And, how, and they had a, a ROTC program in my high school. So it was an Air Force ROTC program. So, at, you know, in 10th grade, my, my friends, or ninth grade even, they would have uniforms on. They go through the ROTC program. Yep. We called it ROTC. Uh, but the minute I had my eyes checked and it's like, nope, your eyes are not uh, pilot yeah. material, then I'm like, I'm out. The last thing I'm going to do is follow orders from that ding dong over there. He's my friend and doesn't know anything. Yeah. But he's yeah. a higher rank than me. Well, this doesn't make sense. So the, my military career ended up very early as well. <laughs> so uh, it's fascinating when you shared that. Um, now, you talked about some of your first jobs. Uh, but think about from those first jobs to now, was there any defining moment that stood out in your mind? Anything that, that uh, you reflect on today and go, man, if, if, if I didn't go left and I, instead I went right, it would have been a different life for me. Yeah, I think that the office equipment job put me on a track that was um, had a huge impact on the rest of my life because it was from that. I was actually quite a shy kid in high school. Um, I was known at lunchtime. Well, not known, only known in my mind. I, uh, rather than have to go and talk to people I didn't really know very well or what have you, uh, I would go sleep in, I'd find a classroom where I could just sleep for the lunch break. So I didn't have to talk to anybody. So I wasn't exactly your, your outgoing uh, flower as it were. I had a couple of buddies that I rode dirt bikes with and those were the only guys I would talk to. Wow. That's um, probably a new level of introvert there. The sleeping introvert. You yeah. can't even find them. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. So uh, how do you think that transition happened from that person who's highly introverted to being able to get out there and sell office equipment? Well, I, I think I, uh, we'll have to credit. Um, I was really into Tony Robbins at that point in time. His personal power stuff had just hit the market and I was consuming that like crazy. Uh, and, and I was really driven. I didn't want to be poor. We grew up very poor. And I actually wrote a blog post about this the other day. And, and I, in my little mind at that point in time, poverty equaled violence. We had, we had violence in the household that I really didn't, uh, I didn't like. And oftentimes it was the byproduct of not enough money at the end of the month. Um, so I thought to myself, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to have violence in my life. So I don't want to be poor. So I need to find a way to not be poor. And I didn't know any entrepreneurs. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was, but I knew some people that were in sales and one of them was selling photocopiers. And so he introduced me to the, to the sales manager who was also a young guy, maybe four or five years older than me at the time. And he was, you know, he'd broken every record in the book and he was making a hundred thousand dollars a year selling photocopiers. And I was 20 or 21, whatever, whatever it was. And, and like, that's just a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to, if you're going to give me the job, I'm going to do that. And and he did. And he was really, really good at, at training me and role playing with me and told me what books to read. They didn't have podcasts back then. So I wasn't listening to any of those. Uh, I was listening to a lot of tapes. I put the tapes in the cassette of them in the car. And every time I was driving around in the territory, I'd be listening to these tapes all day long. Tom Hopkins was, was kind of my guy back then. Oh, he had some great sales stories. Still has great sales stories. Yeah. Uh, but Tom Hopkins, for those who haven't uh, ever indulged, he's a great sales trainer, highly uh, funny and engaging uh, guy. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, very good one. That's a good callback. How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins probably uh, made me a couple of bucks by, by reading that one. 
And so that, that led me down a path uh, and having that success. And, you know, and at that point in time, I was, you know, foolish with my money, of course, and spent it on cars and all sorts of things like that. But um, it, it just made me want to do more and do more and how see how I could be more successful. And I stayed on that path of working for other people in a sales role uh, until I was 29 or 30, somewhere around there. And then what, what ultimately led to the transition, uh, you know, kind of going working from someone else in a very successful atmosphere. By the way, a lot of people would have felt perfectly comfortable with the results you were producing. So there had to be something that pushed you to make a transition. Yeah, I don't, you know, the last job I had was a pretty easy job and I was making about $200,000 a year doing it. Um, and I look back sometimes and I think, I'm not, why did I leave that job? <laughs> But something, it was boring. Um, and it, I wasn't intellectually stimulated. And that was a problem for me. Um, and I, I just thought there's got to be, I, gotta, I know how to sell stuff. And, and I I'd met this guy who was um, the, the, I, the tech guy, the IT guy that came into our office and fixed the computers. And part of my job was entertaining clients at, sports games and I would have the booth, the box, you know, like corporate box a lot. And I'd always have extra seats because our basketball team in Vancouver sucked. So I became friendly with this fella and, and I, I invited him to bring his girlfriend or whatever to, you know, use these seats that I had. And, and I, I, some way, somehow we just got ended up talking about, you know, maybe forming a, a company, an IT company together. Cause that's what he was doing. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, how hard could that be? And, um, ultimately we decided to do that. Um, and that was in Oh one, just, just like right around nine 11. And that was when I be officially. So I, I quit my $200,000 a year job. I sold my house and I cashed in everything I had to create as much cause he had no money. Um, and I created as much liquidity as I could and as much time, free time as I could, to start my very first business, which is still in business today. I don't own it anymore, but it's still a company that's in business today. Uh, first of all, uh, I love that evolution of the ideas and, and the, the very motivation of, you know, my mind isn't stimulated. This, this, I, I have to make a change just based on that alone. That drives a lot of our behaviors. Uh, for those of us who are afflicted with that, you know, it'd be a lot easier to just sit on a beach, I suppose. But there, you know, mm -hmm. myself, I find that same kind of push that pushes me to do stuff, even though, you know, there's other times where I'm like, why did I push myself into that? But my, I suppose my question to you is a lot of people out there, they're so afraid of making the, this change. You know, you quit a, a lucrative position, a, a big paying job, sold your house you know, a lot of people are like, no, I can't start a business until I have all my ducks in a row, until it's no risk to me. H how do you, you know, how do you talk to somebody like that who has quite a difference uh, in their viewpoint than maybe you? Uh, that's a tough one. It's about, um, I mean, to put it in perspective, at the time I was not married and I didn't have kids, so I didn't have other people to provide for. So that made the decision, I think, easier. Sure. Um, uh, but I suppose it comes down to priorities and sacrifices, uh, all fueled by desire. I had a high level of desire. You know, I remember listening to all the tapes in the car and seeing guys on covers of business magazines. And I remember thinking, well, 
are they really that much smarter than me? I mean, couldn't I maybe do that? I don't know. But if I stay in this job, I'll never find out. Um, and so I was able to play a trick on my mind or I don't even know how to describe it, to be honest with you, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal at the time because I thought, well, I could always go get a job like this again if I really needed to. Um, and I, that was the last job I've ever had. I've never had one since. Um, and so I, I don't think I have a great answer to your question, unfortunately, other than to say to people, you have to really, really figure out what do you really want and what are you willing to pay to get it? Because there's going to be a cost. Make no mistake about it. If you're making the transition from W-2 employee to employer, there is going to be a cost. And, and it will most likely be far more painful than you can possibly imagine at the beginning. And if you knew how painful it was going to be, you'd never do it. Because in my case, I, I said to this fellow, I said, this is how much money I have do you think that we could start this company and break even within three months? And he didn't know, but he, he said, yeah, sure. And so I think that I was making my decision kind of based on, well, I'm only going to be out of money for three months and then I'll have money coming in again. Cause I didn't know anything about business. <laughs> I just knew how to sell stuff. It took five years for that business to break even by the way. And by the time it did, I was 400 grand in debt. If someone had said to me, hey, it'll take five years and you're going to be this much in debt, I, there's no way I would have done it. But I didn't know that. I didn't have that information at the time. I had just a little bit of information, which I think maybe that's the thing that gets in the people's way or in some people's way is they want all this information to make a decision. Then they get so much that it scares them and they don't make the decision. So they just dream and procrastinate and read about other people. Um, versus I have always been ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Never one to like spend weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, doing research. And then that's cost me on occasion, but for the most part, it served me very well. Well, I, I definitely appreciate the fact that, you know, uh, if we have all the facts, we're rarely going to make a move, right? Anytime yeah. I, I call my fleet of lawyers about some opinion, most of their answers are based on, uh, Maybe, you know, or it depends or no, right? They're, yeah. they're highly risk adverse. Whereas, you know, when we see a new idea or a new concept, like, like your new uh, Flowster software idea, you know, if we went and talked to a bunch of, you know, smart people, they might go, oh, no, that, that type of business is very competitive. There's already a lot of, you know, they would give us many reasons why it might not work. Mm -hmm. But you know in your heart that it's going to work because it's a core part of who you have become as a systems guy. and I can't, you know, for me, it's, it always ends up saying, I can't imagine myself not doing it. Whether it succeeds or fails is a secondary question at that point. Is that mm -hmm. how you see it kind of? I don't know if I saw it like that in the beginning. I didn't so much think it wouldn't work because I thought, well, it's not going to be that expensive to start. And, and, and in hindsight, it was a really crappy business model and a business model I'd never do again. But I didn't even know what a business model was. I didn't understand product businesses versus service businesses. I just thought sell stuff, make money. So being naive, I think to a certain degree was helpful to me because at the time you talk about a space being competitive. If you open the yellow pages and looked up IT consulting company, you know, it's like the yellow pages that thick. There's a million of them. I mean, there's no differentiate between any of them. And it just comes down to dollars per hour. And we can get more into business model later because we did iterate from that. Um, but I think my, yeah, just not really knowing what I was getting myself into uh, 
made it relatively easy to make the decision to do it. I love it. Well, a little bit of uh, naivete goes a long ways in the risk uh, business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, give me a give me a time, maybe uh, along your journey at any point. Was there ever a point where you wanted to give up and go back to the, <laughs> the two hundred thousand dollar gig or whatever? Oh, I can tell you of a very specific time. Yes, okay. there there were many times, but this is the one that stands out most. So. When I was a stockbroker, I was fortunate one day, I, a client, this fellow walked into the office. He was a very wealthy man. He didn't have an appointment, which in our practice was highly unusual because I was in a very successful practice. We only took people by appointment. And the reception came back and said, you know, this fellow's here and he, he wants to know if anyone's available. And I said, well, if he doesn't mind eating, watching me eat my lunch, I'm happy to chat with him. So... We ended up making a trade for him, and I did very, very well for him on that very first trade. I think we broke even on everything after that. But nonetheless, I was the golden boy because first impressions are what they are. And so after I started my – I just remembered my first business was actually – I forgot one. It was a flop. So I, I had this idea um, to start a, what's called an – and it's laughable now – an e-commerce service provider, okay. kind of like – uh, a Shopify, but for B2B players. And this was way back in 2001. So anyway, he gave me a bit of money to try and make this thing go. And after five or six months of, you know, me and a business plan on a laptop, I said, it's not going to happen. I'm, I'm outgunned on, on every front. I don't have a prototype. I don't have anything. So I gave him, you know, what was left of his money back. And then I went off and I did a business that's still, it's called Durand. That Dur and I did Durand with that, with that fellow. Um, and so as I started in, when we were running Durand and we were burning through all my, my money, cause of course we didn't break even in three months, like Ed said we would, um, I started to run out of money and I just started spending it. You know, at one point when we weren't getting clients fast enough, I got an office, I hired some salespeople. So now I'm, I'm writing pretty big checks every month. And so savings doesn't last very long when you're writing 10,000, $12,000 checks every month. And so John, my, I call him my rich dad. He's the investor who came into my office when I was a stockbroker. Uh, and so John, he lent me 25,000. A couple months later, that was gone. He lent me another 25,000. A couple months later, that was gone. And then to your question, there was one particular Saturday morning when I didn't have payroll for Monday. Um, and I went and I, I had a breakfast with John who I've, who I'd become quite, quite close with at this point in time. I still do business to, with John to this day, by the way, nice. I'm just bought a $1.3 million building and he helped me with that. Um, and I said to John, I said, you know, here's the situation, here's what our progress and so forth and so on. Um, but I, I don't have any money for payroll on Monday. And he looked at me and he, He's got a very, very dry sense of humor, this man. I, I, I love him to pieces. And he said, uh, isn't, it, isn't it time you, sh you should shut it down? Because we'd been in business about 18 months at that point in time. And John's been a real estate guy his whole career, so he had no understanding of the business that we were doing. He just knew that he was betting on me. Like the business plan was irrelevant in his mind. It was all about what's this guy right here. And uh, for me, at that point in time, shutting it down would have meant personal bankruptcy because I had liabilities in excess of my assets. And so I had no way of paying all that off. Um, and, and so, you know, shutting it down wasn't an option. 
I was like, hell no, it's not time to shut it down. And we'd been growing revenue and I knew that we were close to break even um, because we had a recurring revenue model in that business. That's how we iterated the business model, which that's a, that's a funny story. Um, and so I, I convinced him to give me another 50 grand, but it, I didn't want to take on any more debt because honestly, I was just too scared. So I said, I need another 50, but let's do this. Let's take the existing 50 that you lent me add 50 more to it and convert it to equity. How much of my company do you want? And he said, well, how much of it do you own? And I said, 80%. He said, great, I'll take half. Ooh. Yeah, right? Yep, yeah, I, I guess, you know, he's a, he's a good deal maker. So uh, John teaches through lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> he's always been exceedingly fair, but he teaches through lessons. So, so uh, because he gave me the opportunity to buy it back later on. Um, at a higher price, but I, nonetheless, it's capitalism. That's how it works. That's right. So, so my options were go bankrupt or say yes. Well, you know which one I picked, right? Say yes. And from that moment forward, uh, we stopped bleeding cash because uh, I knew we were close and we got to break even. Um, and the only thing he helped me with after that is we needed an operating line of credit, which he ended up having to co-sign for another hundred grand. Just because in that business accounts receivable were always just a just a bear, and that was a I I had no idea that people wouldn't pay you on time. What really? You send them an invoice, they don't pay. Come on now. I know. Which is why now I never get into businesses with accounts receivable. Never. None of my businesses have AR. Everything I get paid up front, um, except Amazon, but they pay on time every two weeks. Yeah, they're good. So, for so, so that was a, a moment in time where if John had decided we were going to shut it down, <laughs> I wasn't going to really have a choice in it because I didn't know anybody else with money. I didn't have any other credit resources available. I didn't have anything else to sell. Like I was literally out of money and, uh, and he, he saved me. I love it. Well, I, I just, uh, first of all, it was a it was a lucrative lesson in terms of being able to save the company. When you're up against a wall like that, you got to make payroll. The the out is a terrible outcome, right? To, uh -huh. to have to go bankrupt and have to, you know, uh, people when you when you sign for leases and you have all of these obligations, there's so many things that require personal guarantees, uh, which I I'm a, not a fan of. If you can avoid signing personal guarantees, please do so. But all of that pressure must have been extraordinary at that time. Yeah, not nearly as bad as when I ended up selling that company. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I talk about as an entrepreneur, you, you must have the ability to embrace economic pressure and not collapse and not lose the ability to, to think and to function. And, and depending upon how much economic pressure you've put yourself under that can be very difficult um but you just suck it up buttercup because you got to keep going if you oh, can boy. if you and 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 to put it in perspective i didn't go from not in debt to 400 grand in debt in 24 hours it was the old joke of how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time well how do you go into big debt well one loan at a time they just yeah. keep on piling on top of each other and that's what happened for me well, and this is a, not an uncommon story, to be quite honest. Um, you know, you guys were smart because over time you pivoted the business model. It sounds like you, you stopped doing a fee for service and, and kind of, you know, a fee for time specifically, and you did a fee for kind of a package service. Is that 
Yeah, we, we got away from doing the hourly rate stuff because that's hopeless. And instead we had customers sign annual contracts and they, we would debit their bank account on the first of every month. And then I tried systems. I tried to figure out how many different pieces of software or how can we automate more of the, this labor, laborious stuff that we have to do to get our cost structure down so that we could increase our margin. Cause of course, you know, customers are contracted to pay us, you know, 10,000 a month or whatever it was. But if I can get my cost of delivery down, then my profit margin improves. And, and we got reasonably good at that. No, that's a really good. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, you were able to sell that company and had a, a positive outcome in the end, yes? I did. I sold it for $1.2 million. Good. See, there, it's all's well that ends well, everybody. But it was, it was a very arduous process. And this is ultimately what has led you to probably consider other businesses that have different business models. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, <laughs> to put it in perspective, when you make a bad business model choice like I did, um, so that business, it took me eight years to make my one point two. Well, I only made after the time I, you know, paid off the investors and all the other things I was left with about 700 grand. Um, I'm going to make 700 grand on this building. I just bought and the whole thing took 90 days. I love it. Versus yeah. eight years. So good business model versus bad business model. Real estate is a very good business model if you do it right. Um, E-commerce businesses, anything that, that scales. The important thing to understand is, can you grow your revenue significantly and quickly without growing your headcount significantly and quickly? Yeah. And service businesses, you can't. And product businesses, especially like a software company, uh, you can, and an Amazon business is about as passive as a product business as you can get because there's so much of the fulfillment piece and the traffic piece that comes from the Amazon mothership that you don't really have to have that many employees. Yeah, it is highly leveraged against somebody else's fixed overhead and you use it in a variable expense way, right? So yeah. when, when you're doing online sales, when you're using the Amazon FBA or fulfillment by Amazon model, you're leveraging all of their warehouse costs, all of their everything and robots and all that stuff. And you just pay your little fee for each of the little item that goes through the system. It's, it is a, a very flexible uh, model. Yep. I like that a lot. So uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into a little bit more about that systems talk. I want to learn more about uh, webs. You, did you call it webs, the systems yep. product? Yep. And, uh, and maybe Flowster as well. Uh, we're going to do it right after this. Empowered. The name says it all, connecting e-commerce entrepreneurs with great people, ideas, systems, and the services needed to stay business dynamic and to grow. Empowery is a network, a cooperative venture of tools and resources to make you better at what you do, because we love what you do. We are you. Visit Empowery.com to learn more. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Okay, here we are. Uh, it's Steve Simonson back again on Awesomers.com, and uh Trent and I were just talking about systems. And, you know, one of the things I should ask you, Trent, uh, is do you have a favorite tool or uh, business process uh, app, anything that you, you care to call out that you, you or your team uses on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, Flowster uh, out of the equation for the moment. Well, I was going to say that would be the big one. Um, in addition to that, Trello. We're big fans of Trello. That's one of our core tools, HubSpot. 
is another of our core tools. Slack is another of our core tools. Uh, I spend about 2,500 bucks a month on software. So we got a lot of tools. Giddy up. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, tools are only good if they're used and they're used in a systemic way. And that's clearly one of your strengths. Uh, you know, we talked about the e-myth and kind of your, your uh, maybe that was at the beginning of your view of systems as a core part of the running a business. Um, how has that evolved over time from the time you kind of read the book and started thinking about it till now? Well, in the beginning, um, because my first experience was with an IT company, I didn't know how to do any of the IT stuff that the company did. So there was no opportunity for me to have any role in that. I just said to my co-founder, I said, I want you to document everything. Here, read this book. I want you to document everything. And I never looked at any of those processes because it would have been like reading Russian because it, you know, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. Um, and now with when I so when I started my my Amazon business, that's I think when I really went back to the well and embraced it because I've been, I've been using virtual assistants from the Philippines now for, oh, I think like nine years. Um, and so I'd had a lot of experience with that. And I, of course I'd created training videos and other type of things. But when I started this, we were able to go from zero to a hundred grand a month in five months, largely because product sourcing, which is in the wholesale model, which is extremely laborious um, I just broke it down into steps and I, I documented the heck out of every one of those steps because I knew I didn't want to do any of that stuff myself. I knew it wasn't going to be time effective. And I immediately hired, I think it was two or three or maybe even four. I don't remember because I had a member of my team doing the hiring for me um, of virtual assistants. And that was, it just, it just, the business just took off because we had, we were, our output was so high because we had lots of people at two bucks an hour following these systems and executing the work in the way that it needed to be done. And then of course, as when you start sourcing products and you start growing revenue, you have all sorts of other things you need processes for. Well, now we're onboarding new suppliers and now we have shipments and we have reconciliations and we have listing optimization and we have pay-per-click management and now we have HR and we have finance and like all this other stuff just kind of happens. So it was very natural as I, hired people like point upstairs because they'll sit upstairs. It was natural as I hired them to indoctrinate them all into this is how we operate. Like there's a joke in my office that we, you know, you're not allowed to fart unless you have an SOP for it. Um, and it's kind of true. We literally have an SOP for everything and I've trained them all on how to create SOPs and it's absolutely a part of the culture. And I can't imagine, I can't even imagine trying to run a business without all of these processes in place. I love it. The uh, the personal gas generation SOP coming soon. Uh, that's, uh, that's a pretty good one. Um, now, let me ask you this, because I, I love systems. and I love the mentality. And I really, I want to reinforce the customers out there listening that, you know, often our ego gets in the way um, or our own ignorance gets in the way. And by that, I mean, when we start doing things, we think we're the only ones who can do it well. We're the only one, you know, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. All, all of this kind of um, stuff is mentally kind of put into our minds, or maybe we think it uh, genuinely. What, what's your thoughts about that? Well, as a, uh, as a CEO, you get to make lots of choices. And one of the choices that you can make is you can have growth or you can have total control, but you cannot have both. So 
there are many people out there who are control freaks and so they don't get any growth. They remain a one man show and they, they get by. And my, that's not me. Uh, but again, because I don't, I don't want to do all the day to day stuff. I got, I became an entrepreneur because I wanted this entrepreneurial lifestyle. I wanted flexibility in my schedule that, that other people didn't have or couldn't have. I wanted to be able to go where I wanted, do what I wanted, when I wanted, for as long as I wanted with whoever I wanted. Freedom. It's my number one value. And so when I decided that I would choose growth over control, well, what is a way to minimize the risk of having things out of control? And that's to define processes for how things are going to be done. And then accept the fact that everybody you hire is probably only going to be 80% as good as you. And in some cases, as your company gets bigger and you can afford more talented people, they're going to be better than you. But in the beginning, they're, they're not. And But be okay with that because you're like, well, they might be 80% as good as me, but we're doing three times as much of whatever as I could do on my own. Therefore, the net, net, net is more than I could accomplish on my own. Well, why, why wouldn't you do that? It's really good math. Uh, I, I do fundamentally agree. And th there is an evolution in hiring. So when you start out and you start talking about, you know, VAs doing a particular process, maybe they're, you know, kind of base level um, in terms of skills and, and pay and so forth. Over time, you can find people in every category that, that exceed your own capabilities, in my opinion. And, oh, yeah. and your role as a CEO really should be to find that uh, talent pool and put them into place if you really do want to have a business that's growing and scaling and leveraged um, versus just being, you know, kind of the one man uh, patent, you know, in your office, right? If you just yep. want to be a commander all the time, um, it's not as effective as an organization. And I, I think that's a that's something that people need to understand that it's it's possible to do. It's not just... A, a nice dream it is possible to do it and you're living proof yeah it is possible and i think the other thing that that people should think about is if you are self if you don't have a team you don't have a business you just have a job you're just self-employed that's not a business that's i work for myself because if you stop working the money stops coming in that's not a business a business is like my Amazon business. I, I don't have a day-to-day -day role in that organization. I haven't for the last year. Um, as one person has left and while we replace them, yeah, I'll have to put the hat on for a bit and, and fill in while that person is, while that role is open. But that in my mind is the difference between having a business and just having a job where you're your own boss or your clients are your boss. And, and again, that doesn't really appeal to me because I mean, heck, as I proved in my sales career, if you get a good sales job and you're really good at it, you could have worked for somebody else and make 200 grand a year. You don't need to go. And, and most small one person businesses, they don't even make that much money. No, no. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, you know, it's funny as you were talking about that, uh, the old phrase from Michael Gerber kind of jumped into my mind, which is, you know, you don't own a business when you're that one man show, you own a job as you described. And <clears throat> this idea that, you know, we, any of us that are trying to put a business together, if, if we don't take the steps of saying, you know, what we truly want and, and what we're trying to design in terms of an outcome, then we often find ourselves kind of making ad hoc decisions and they're not always good decisions. Uh, whereas I, I believe that your philosophy about systems, if we put them in place and we break down the processes so that it minimizes the risk of delegating, right? Other mm -hmm. people can handle it. They kind of, that, those are the, the, uh, what are those things on the road that they keep you on the road? The guardrails. Guardrails. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's uh, 
we'll do a, another uh, session where I, we just do uh, the guessing games. <laughs> uh, but the, having guardrails are what the systems and processes are all about, in my view. And then you get good people to execute them, but they get better. And I suppose, is it fair to say that over time, they're the ones who are actually making the systems and documenting those versus you? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not super involved now in in updating the existing SOPs because I don't do those jobs anymore. Um, I don't often create new ones. Once in a while, I do. Um, but for the most part, all even that has been delegated to the team. I now, you, you do need to have quality control in place. Uh, I'm fortunate. I have a very bright wife, um, and she is the basically the president of the Amazon business. And there's some things that she does better than me. There's lots of things in my mind that I do better than her, but she is um, good enough at overseeing the SOP process that when I look at SOPs that she's created or that the employees that report to her have created, I look at them and I'm like, well, you know, it's not like I would have done it any better than that. So that's good enough. Now, if I didn't have her, then of course I'd have to, you know, that would be one of the roles maybe that I didn't delegate would have been, you know, final QA or for, for, for a new SOP. But thankfully, um, you know, she's on the team. I love it. Yeah. Well, and again, that kind of role can be delegated to somebody who's capable. I, you know, my organizations yeah. in the past, we've had, you know, full training teams and they would create documentation and, and they had their own methods of kind of validating and testing and so forth. Uh, and it just depends on the size of business that you are today. If, if it's just you, you're going to have to take some of that documentation, but it can be moved to others in short order if you show them the way. And I'm, I'm hoping that Flowster will be uh, a relatively easy way for people to kind of control their systems and put their systems into place. Is that a good guess? Fair to say? Yes, absolutely. So Flowster, rather than, rather than a software app, like normally when you go sign up for software, it was designed by the engineers to like, like HubSpot CRM. It does this thing. It functions as a CRM. Flowster is more of a platform. Um, you know, it's just going to be coming out of beta here soon and, and be available. And, and it is a platform for building standard operating procedures. However the hell you want to build them in whatever industry you're in for whatever you need to do over time as we develop more partnerships with people who have domain expertise. Like I have a lot of Amazon seller domain expertise. So we created SOPs for that market. The goal with Flowster is to find other domain experts in other markets who can create SOPs and put them on the platform so that those SOPs can be purchased by people in that industry. And ideally as well, we'll have developers that end up developing third-party apps and third-party integrations, kind of like the Salesforce platform. You know, obviously they're a little bigger, a little bigger than us, but the, conceptually it's the same idea. You've got this marketplace where there's third-party apps that enhance the functionality of the platform. Now, yeah, there's going to be some critical mass and so forth and so on that, that, that's required to attract those developers, and that might take a little while, especially because we're not going to we're not seeking venture funding. Um, but that's, in, that's what Flowster is intended to be as it, as it stands right out of the box. You know, you can, if you're an Amazon seller, you can come buy my done for you SOPs, plug them in there. And, you know, if you're using all of the same apps that I'm using, 
you've literally just replicated my infrastructure and you could call it plug and play. If you're not using, if you're not willing to spend 2,500 bucks a month on software or whatever to get all the apps that I use and on my business and all of the SOPs are written for all those apps, we've given you a huge head start and you'll go in and you'll hit the edit button and you'll make some changes. Oh, this is a, well, we don't use HubSpot. We use close.io. Okay. We'll make the changes to, to make a few different screenshots and make a few adjustments. And now your SOPs are customized for, for close.io. If you use, you know, some other repricing tool that we use again, same idea, you can see what we've done and just make the little changes that you need to make. If you don't want to switch over to the same repricing tool that we use. And over time, uh, I hope that we end up having, you know, success in more than one industry and that we have partnerships, like I say, with the domain experts in those industries and then the apps that are used by the people in those industries, we would have solid integrations for. So there's, there's many years of development ahead of us yet. Well, I really do like the, the very premise of, you know, uh, becoming a platform, right? And, and this, this concept of, you know, it's too simplistic to just call them systems and procedures, right? The, the idea of a complete company workflow you know, in all of those various categories, I'm sure there's countless others. You know, you, you talked about it, just a couple there, um, you know, a repricing tool or, a, you know, hiring and firing tool, you know, termination process. There, there's so many processes that need to be done. That's, that's actually your business operating system at the end of the day. And, uh, and it deserves a platform. Very interesting idea. Like yeah, yeah, we, we think so. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're onto it. Now, talk a little bit more about webs and what you guys have done in your last couple of releases. Uh, what are people actually getting involved in when they when they get access to webs? So, webs, like I said to you earlier before we sit record, I didn't ever create webs with the intention of it being a product. I created it to scratch my own itch. My company was growing like crazy because we had developed systems for sourcing. And because of the fact that we were landing all these accounts, now we needed systems for everything else that an Amazon seller does. So we set out to create them. And then um, I was invited to speak at a at the Wholesale Formulas annual conference about, you know, to tell my story and of how we grew so quickly. And I got up on stage and I said, hey, everybody, you know, like, I'm going to explain to you my product sourcing system. It's pretty complicated and I don't have anything for sale at the end. So take good notes. And I proceeded to just info dump for free. And as you might expect, not that I really expected it, to be honest with you, people who came up to the microphones and up to the stage afterwards, overwhelmingly, their question was, well, would you sell us a copy of your systems so that we don't have to go and create them from scratch? Because uh, we'd put a year into develop them, developing them at that point. And I said, well, um, yeah, let me think about that. And so we went into the first launch, really not sure how it would go. Um, and I had no real experience in creating, you know, that level of a product before and the the sales numbers that came in were wildly ahead of our expectations almost double and so that right away clued me into the fact that wow there's there's actually quite a demand for done for you SOPs that are specific to a given niche and so then you know we we made mistakes we didn't anticipate the customers wouldn't understand like zaps in the beginning i had created zaps to save a couple mouse clicks here and there. None of them were mission critical, but I'm such a process nerd. I'm like, Hey, if I can save, save two mouse clicks, I'm going to make me a zap. <laughs> well, and I had worked with Zapier to get zap templates so that customers didn't have to recreate these things from scratch. Well, I, it was a nightmare. I mean, people, 
they literally couldn't even figure out how to import the, the Zap templates into their Zap account and our help desk blew up. And so we were like, that was an awful experience, both for them and for us. And so then we, you know, got rid of the zaps in the second one and tried to simplify things. And ultimately that's what led to the decision of, I need my own software platform because I need to be able to do these integrations. I need a way to efficiently send updates. I need a way to efficiently create integrations without people having to rely on Zapier. And yes, we're going to have a Zapier integration. The coding's almost done for the, for the eager beavers and the, the kids that sit with the propellers on their head, like me at the front of the class, but that's not everybody. Not everybody wants to do that. That's not their thing. So we want to make it much, much easier. And that's kind of why we decided we needed to, to create our own platform. And so now WEBS, which stands for Wholesale E-Commerce Business Systems, like I said a few minutes ago, if you use all the same applications that I use, yeah, it is. It's a plug and play system because it's what my team uses. Like what we sell is not any different than what we use. The only thing we took out of it was our usernames and our passwords and special IDs and stuff like that. Other than that, it's identical. Um, and if you're not willing to use all those apps, yeah, you're going to have to hit the edit button and you're going to have to make some changes. So maybe turnkey isn't the right word for you, but it is for the person who says, I'm just going to use everything Trent's using because a lot of it's, some of it's free, some of it's not free. Yeah. You got to spend some money on it. Um, you don't need to spend $2,500 a month. There's apps that I use that, that have nothing to do with webs. And so you don't need to go get those apps. Um, but you're going to have to buy some of them. And it is a way for a, an Amazon seller to be able to focus their time and effort on what really counts and not get bogged down and I'm trying to recreate all this stuff. Because for example, product sourcing, I have uh, a couple, for example, by the name of Kip and April who had a successful RA business prior to becoming a webs customer. And they were uncomfortable about the future of RA because of Amazon cracking down on receipts and so forth. And may uh, I just interrupt and say RA for everybody keeping score at home is retail arbitrage in my estimation. Yeah, it is. And, and Amazon doesn't really like it. No, um, it's not a great business long-term in my No. And, and so they wanted to, you know, transition to wholesale. And, um, you know, when they first got webs and they looked at it, they tried to read everything from end to end, which is like the worst thing in ever to do. Cause you wouldn't, buy a McDonald's franchise and then sit down with a franchise book that's like 9,000 pages long, read the whole thing and then decide you're going to start your business. Like that would be ludicrous. You would flip like it's going to have sections in it, right? Operations, how to cook a hamburger, how to hire staff, whatever. It's going to have sections. You're going to go to the section you need to go to for the thing you're working on. And you're going to look at the standard operating procedure, which is relevant to that thing. And I thought that would be obvious to people who bought webs. And much to my surprise, it wasn't. Many people sat down and read it. Kip and April, they sat down and read it. And they became very overwhelmed. And they suffered from analysis paralysis. And one day on a coaching call with them, I said, can you explain to me like what happened? And they, they told me this. And I said, you're kidding. I go, that's not what you're supposed to do. I said, you're just supposed to go like into the sourcing folder and start on step one. And they went, oh, <laughs> I, I'd never sold this thing as a product. It never occurred to me that, 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 that people wouldn't just do that. And so they now are a raving web supporter because they said, once we realized that it was like a fast food menu, that we just go, if we want dessert, we go to the dessert section and see how to make chocolate pudding. And we follow that recipe or in a, in a non-metaphor way, we, if we need to source products, we go to the product sourcing folder and we start at step one which uh, is finding competitors and step two is product extractions. And then it just continues on. 
And they said, once we got that figured out, we, we just ignored all of the parts of webs that we didn't need yet. We didn't sit and read them. We didn't even look at them. We just focused on what we needed. And that was what made it wildly successful. And overwhelmingly, people who have succeeded in their Amazon businesses using, using webs, their story is like April and Kip's. They've come to understand that it's not a training course. It's not like a, uh, you're, not, you're not supposed to read the whole thing. You don't watch the movie from the end, to the, from the beginning to the end. You just skip to the part that you need and use that part. And if people can manage to wrap their mind around that, um, then they end up becoming wildly successful because it saves them a whole bunch of time. Well, it is, um, I, I love this, the origin of both webs and uh, Flowster because, you know, it was, it, was born, both of these things were born out of a, your own need, right? You, yep. you needed for your own wholesale business systems and procedures. So you wrote them down and you're really good at it. And you have your own take on it. And then everybody else who got wind of it, they're like, hey, you could save me a lot of time. What do I got to pay you to get a look at those, right? And this is the done for you um, is a really powerful methodology. And I, I really encourage people to utilize it where you can because it, it's a highly leveraged move. You know, you can't buy time literally but this is the closest thing to it because it took you guys an awful long time to build those uh, procedures. Yes. Very much. So essentially all this is, it's kind of like buying an Amazon wholesale franchise. Like if you go to buy a franchise of anything, what do they give you? They give you a formula that has been proven to work and they give you all of the supporting documentation and training that you require to use that formula to succeed. Yeah, that's a hashtag franchise prototype, everybody. Yeah, um, and, and so we didn't invent the fact that selling wholesale on Amazon works. It's widely known that that works. So that part of the formula, I didn't have to prove to anybody. We then created the operations manual and now have training material that shows people. I did. This is another thing I didn't understand. I didn't understand that we would need uh, training material to show people how to use an SOP because when I wrote the SOP, I wrote it so that I could literally just assign it to a VA and they would start to read the instructions and just do the thing. Who knew? Ironically enough, now we, yeah, we've had to create an extensive library of training videos to talk about the SOPs, which still I don't fully understand how that works, but nonetheless, it's what people required for the most part. So we were very happy to create it to make it easier on them. So much like a franchise, we're providing the operations manual and the training for the manual and Amazon already proved that selling on Amazon is a good idea. So like I said, we didn't really need to prove that. Yeah, no, it's, it is an evolution. All of these uh, businesses and processes. I just love the fact that you guys are uh, very tuned into what your audience is telling you, right? When when you see somebody who it's not lining up uh, and you, you just solve the problem, you're like, oh, okay, we'll make some videos or, oh, okay, uh, let me tell you how to actually use this stuff a, a little bit better. This is a, a fundamental of a responsive company. So kudos to you guys for, for making that work. Um, man, oh man, this has been extraordinarily insightful. Uh, I love what you're doing. Um, I wanna I want to have you get out your crystal ball before we go. Uh, and, and tell me what, what the, the world of Amazon or systems or anything you care to speculate on looks in five years. Uh, tell me in five years, you know, do you, is e-commerce going to continue to go up? Or are we uh, consolidation coming? Any uh, speculation you care to share? Wow. That is, that, uh, that's a tough one. I don't know that I've ever had a particularly good crystal ball. I feel confident that e-commerce will continue to grow. 
I think Amazon has so much of an infrastructure that the lead that they have will be hard to erode unless they get into problems with the Justice Department for being a monopoly. That could be an issue. Third-party sales are not going to go away on Amazon anytime soon because Amazon makes a lot of money from third-party sellers and they don't have inventory risk. So that's not going away. Where the challenge, where the changes are going to be is there are, it's very competitive and you are going to have to, I think, focus on a specific niche. I think you're going to have to get very, very good at um, targeting potential suppliers and, and putting your sales hat on and showing them why you're the best, you know, why you're the best partner for them to go with, you know, think of, Think of CRM software. Do people still need it? Yeah. Is it super competitive? You're darn right it is because there's a lot of platforms to choose from. Does that mean that, you know, they all just throw their arms up in the air and say, oh gosh, it's too competitive to continue? No, they just figure out how to be better. So you need to be a person who can figure out how to be better, how to outmaneuver your competitors. And there's lots of different ways to do that. Um, so I, I, I see a tremendous opportunity for for people who have those skills to succeed as an Amazon wholesale business. Now, maybe you don't want to be an Amazon wholesale, maybe you're just going to be an e-commerce business. Well, obviously there's a massive opportunity for that as well, because never before has it been easier for uh, someone in their garage to create a brand and take that brand to the global market. I, I'm in this thing called entrepreneurs organization. Um, and there's a fellow on there, him and his wife spent a couple of years developing menstrual cups. Um, and I mean, gosh, his business is just exploding. I interviewed a guy on my show the other day, the founder of pop sockets, these things that go on the back of your cell phone. Um, they're going to sell, he started in 2014, formally, they're going to sell 60 million of these things this year. 60 million. That's, That's a lot. Yeah. I interviewed the founder of Sunfrog, the world's largest t-shirt platform. He did hundred million in his second year. How, how, without e-commerce, how does that even happen? It it's doesn't. A, it's amazing. Well, just there's so many routes to get to where you want to go. And this is the thing. Yeah. Fundamentally, entrepreneurs are wonderful problem solvers, or they have to be problem solvers at the end of the day, if they're yes. going to kind of get through, right? Uh, and I, I think your, your, your predictions, are, by the way, are really spot on and, and opinions that I share and who knows what the future brings, but I, I think you've made some pretty um, good bets right there. Yeah, I, I want to echo one thing you said there because it's so important. Because I know there's a lot of people out there who sell training courses and there's a lot of people who buy training courses. And training courses can be wonderful. But if you are not a problem solver by your very nature, I don't know that no matter how good the training course you're given, I don't know that you have that you'll be successful long-term because the problem with anyone's training course is every day that goes by that training course is one day more out of date because stuff changes all the time. And that's where the problem solver skill set comes into play. You have to be, if you buy my SOPs, um, things are going to change and, and we're going to issue updates, but maybe you find a better app that you like better and it's doing better than what we're doing solve that problem, adapt the SOP to use that other app instead of the one we're using and you'll be more successful than us. That is by far, in my opinion, the most important skill 
or, or maybe personality trait for an entrepreneur to, percept, to, to possess? Oh, very well said. I, you know, we are in the business to solve problems. That's, that's why uh, entrepreneurs exist. We have to add value along the way, and there's many other things, but if we can't get up in the morning and know that there's going to be a problem that we need to solve, and ideally, our, our people are solving a lot of the problems as things go on, and, and yep. you, know, you, you do your very best to avoid the problems, but at the end of the day, the, the onus and the, the burden of responsibility ends up on us for the big problems, and that's just part of the deal. And I, I quite agree with you. If you don't have that personality type or you think that uh, uh, you know, owning your own business is not going to be just one series of problems after another, uh, you, you should open your eyes because it is just one problem after another. <laughs> That's what it is every day. Uh, I love that. Very good uh, uh, words of wisdom to, to leave on. Uh, thank you again for your time, Trent. It's been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I, I love the systems mentality. I'm a big fan. And uh, we'll make sure we get links to, to all your good stuff, um, the podcast and the other things as well. Uh, on here for everybody out there to, to get. Uh, thank you again for joining us. Steve, thank you very much for having me on the show. And I hope that everyone who took time to invest and listen, uh, I really, truly hope that you got something good out of it. No doubt they did. Awesome. So we'll be right back after this. Hey, Amazon Marketplace professionals. This is Parsimony ERP. And we get one question over and over. Can you please tell me exactly what Parsimony does? Well, we'll try, but this is only a 30-second spot, so we're going to have to hurry. Connect to your Seller Central account and pull all the new orders. Enter the orders with all customer data. Enter all of the Amazon fees and charges. Store them at the item level. Generate profit and loss reports at the SKU level. Automatically generate income statements. Handle multiple companies. Handle multiple brands. Handle multiple currencies. Facilitate budgets and forecasts. Store all customer interactions in a sophisticated CRM system. Manage your supply chain. Project and task management. Maintain an audit log. Hey, you get it. That's parsimony, P-A-R-S-I-M-O-N-Y dot com. Parsimony dot com. We've got that. You're listening to the Awesomers Podcast. Boy, if you didn't know that systems were important, as you may recall, I often talk about strategy systems at scale. Trent is a perfect example that should give you all the support you need to know that systems really are a foundational piece of a successful and highly efficient and therefore profitable operation. Right, too many times we get kind of mixed up with this idea of how much revenue did I turn over? Uh, you know, how much money kind of passed through the top line, but we forget about what trickles down to the bottom line. And ultimately, our not just the profit, but our own sanity is the result of good systemization. A, a business that that operates without systems is something that tends to be more of a day-to-day firefighting enterprise for entrepreneurs. And that's not nearly as fun as a systemic run business where a predictable result kind of is accomplished every time. And we used to say, you know, the system runs the, the business, the people run the system. And if for whatever reason, something comes out of the system, something breaks, and we have to handle that with a human, that's okay. We just have to figure it out and decide, is this going to happen over and over? Is somehow the system we have no longer coping with whatever the, the dynamic changes are in the market? Fine, let's tweak the system. Let's make it better and modify it. Uh, but if it's just one of those single times where you know we need to handle with a human because of some weird anomaly, hey, no reason to systematize that. Just go, go back to business. Don't worry about it. And that fire's put out. You don't have to worry about it. So really systemic thinking can be a way of life. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, your own 
keys to unlocking a sane, uh, sustainable business really, in my view, rely entirely on systems at the core of it and really great people running those systems. Now, this has been episode number 52 in the Awesomers.com podcast series. And as always, just go to Awesomers.com slash 52 to find all of the show notes and relevant details. And you can do that right now. And by the way, don't forget to jump on the mailing list that's there. You get lots of fun little systems, processes, and videos that we send to you at no cost, no obligation. We don't beat you down and try to get you to buy our t-shirts or anything. Just go there and check that out. And uh, as always, the show notes and links that we've talked about will be there as well. Well, we've done it again, everybody. We have another episode of the Awesomers podcast ready for the world. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that you've enjoyed our program today. Now's a good time to take a moment to subscribe, like, and share this podcast. Heck, you could even leave a, a review if you wanted. Awesomers around you will appreciate your help. It's only with your participation and sharing that we'll be able to achieve our goals. Our success is literally in your hands. Thank you again for joining us. We are at your service. Find out more about me, Steve Simonson, our guest, team, and all the other Awesomers involved at awesomers.com. Thank you again. Awesomers.com.